Uh, welcome back to the Emergency Medical Minute. I'm Jordan Orada from On the Streets, here with Nick Sippis, your host of Unfiltered. And uh, we wanted to get together today to give some updates on coronavirus. We know COVID-19 is what everybody's working on right now, what everybody's talking about. And I think there's a ton of confusion, not only from the lay people, but from healthcare providers. Absolutely. There's, it's just in today's day and age, there's so many media outlets. There's so many avenues of information. It's hard to know what to filter out and what to filter in and what's reliable and what's not. Obviously, the Emergency Medical Minute is a reliable source of information, but no, I mean, I think I would like to join with Jordan today to try and just still down information that's practical and relevant and helpful to folks, both in the pre-hospital and in the ER and, and maybe a little inpatient settings as well, to just tell you what we know, tell you that we're learning just as you are on a day-to-day basis and tracking this as it's dynamic, and I think that we'll just try and give you some some helpful insight into what data is out there and what information we can share, so... Yeah, and I think that we're learning a lot from each other from the pre-hospital side and the in-hospital side. And one of the things that we're finding now is that a lot of the patients that EMS has a suspicion of with uh, flu-like symptoms are not the ones testing positive. The ones that are testing positive are the undifferentiated sick case or the upper abdominal pain that turns out to maybe be the lower lobe pneumonia or something like that. So That's right. How are we to identify these pre-hospitally? You know, it might not be possible. I mean, we've tried a number of different screening protocols, and initially it was travel-related, right? But there's kind of an inherent delay. When we're catching cases that have traveled here, that means they're already here, and there's likely already some component of community spread. So then we tried to broaden it out to include respiratory symptoms plus community spread. But to your point, Jordan, we're seeing a number of different presentations, and it's probably not fair to ask EMS to really know who it is. I mean, there is the classic case, right? I mean, there's the fever, cough, nursing home patient. Uh, Maybe there's there's even a suspected exposure or known exposure. And obviously, you know, you know, we're all jumping all over that one and figuring out what we need to do. But there are these occult cases. And I, I think just out of respect for EMS and to protect them, I, I think we're going to a procedure of really just protecting yourself for really any medical complaint. Is it generalized weakness? Is it upper abdominal pain to your point? Is it back pain? Is it just mild fatigue, altered mental status? You know, these things, We a lot of these questions we've visited with sepsis before, right? And how difficult it is to find screening questions or even initial screening labs that truly find those septic patients that are at risk for decompensation. I think we're seeing a lot of the same trends with these. And I think just we should just tell EMS folks to protect themselves uh, out of an abundance of caution, really, for almost any medical call that they're getting. What do you think? Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. And I think we've seen some agencies that have been slow to respond and some that are ahead of the curve and almost bringing alarm to the community because they're wearing full garb on every patient. But I think because this is evolving so quickly, we still don't know what we're actually looking for or how to rule it in or out in the field. That is absolutely the best practice for EMS right now is keep an extraordinarily high index of suspicion. And even if you are taking care of someone who has an isolated traumatic fall and of <laughs> injury to their their arm, there's still no telling who they've been hanging out with the last six days. And or who you've been hanging out with the last six days as, a provi- as an EMS or a hospital provider. Yeah, we're right? all Petri dishes, right? So I guess that brings us to the next thing is how do we best prevent this and keep an awareness not only as providers, um, obviously we want to mask our patients and keep that high index of suspicion, but what should we be doing? Are we, you know, wearing pappers all the time, full N95s and gowns with every patient? How, how do we balance 
safety for ourselves, for all of our patients, and resource utilization. That's right. And I think the resource utilization part of it is one that is different depending on your agency and your region and your accessibility to resources. And I think you have to balance that with wanting to protect yourself against every patient. And that's a kind of personal individual agency decision and individual hospital decision. I think you can lean a little bit on CDC guidelines. There is a hierarchy of exposure. I mean, in terms of at the the highest risk of exposure are those who are COVID positive or COVID known exposed who have a number of medical comorbidities who are actively, you know, symptomatic. And if you're doing any sort of aerosolizing procedure, nebulizers, bronchoscopy, non-invasive positive pressure ventilation, CPR, intubation, any of these procedures, which bag valve mass ventilation, if you're doing any of these procedures, which lead to aerosolization in those patients, that is high risk. We know that they should be masked to the extent that it's possible. We should be wearing N95s. We should be doing maximal PPE, putting the patient on airborne if possible, and certainly respiratory and drop precautions. That is clearly the highest risk. And then we, I think a lot of us know that. I think pre-hospital, we know that. And in the ER, we know that. But there's a hierarchy, right? And and, and as you come down and a pa- come down the hierarchy, there's patients who don't have known COVID, who don't have known COVID exposure, who maybe have respiratory symptoms, but you're not doing aerosolizing procedures on. Those folks are okay with a mask and with the mask on the patient and a mask on yourself, in addition to eye protection, goggles, and a gown. And But there's just, there's a, it's a spectrum. And with the, the different presentations and different levels of severity and with testing so limitedly available, the you know, risk stratifying based off of known COVID exposure is really rare. There's so few known COVID exposures that we have because we're seeing four-day turnarounds for the test. So, you know, you, it's really hard to classify those folks. So, you know, essentially, I would say were any aerosolized procedures high risk uh, in a patient who's having any sort of medical complaint, especially respiratory related, those folks, we have to protect ourselves. Uh, we've got to be able to get to the next room and the next patient and the next shift and the next week and the next month of this because that's where we're headed, right? And I think that as we get more data about this, maybe we'll be able to better finely tune it, but I think we've just got to kind of come at it broadly for now. Yeah. And and so that brings me to another question I have when we're thinking about how are we best caring for our patients in maybe thinking about avoiding unnecessary aerosolizing procedures and how do we gauge necessary versus unnecessary when someone needs to be intubated, they generally need to be intubated. How right. about right. a neb? And and then another follow-up question is, how long does that danger last? Once we've stopped aerosolizing this patient, how long is that room at greater risk? How long is that patient covered in a greater quantity of germs? Do we know any of that? I don't know that we do. I mean, I would only just kind of lean on the recent New England Journal of Medicine article that talks about the longevity of virus detection on a number of surfaces and to say, okay, if they've got symptoms and we think they're a possible COVID patient and they're getting this aerosolized procedure and every procedure is different, right? I mean, uh, being on a, a heated high flow nasal cannula for an hour and spewing through that versus like a, you know, a five minute neb are obviously different. I don't think we know the answer to that about how different are they how long does the do those droplets stay in close proximity and 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 then in what capacity meaning like what's the viral load on the given surface and then consequently what does that mean in infectivity to you and coming in exposure to that i mean i think you can say once the patient's been in the room and you go through your normal cleaning procedures as per your institutional and or cdc guidelines and that room is no longer at risk and you can go right back in but for a given patient who undergoes a an aerosolizing procedure that patient is more infectious to you per se than they were before the procedure how much so i don't know i mean there's probably 
probably a smarter person out there who knows the answer. <laughs> and if it's not here, there's probably one in China or South Korea or Italy or any of the other places that are seeing outbreaks, but I, I, I don't know the answer to that. Well, and I, I think we mentioned earlier, but I want to reiterate, there is new information coming out on all these topics every day. So if this is three days from today, what is today? The 18th we're recording this? That's right. Wednesday the 18th. Two in the afternoon, mountain time, because this is rapidly developing and we're learning a lot from everywhere. And so continue to be checking the CDC website and your local state's health department because I think they're all doing a pretty darn good job staying on top of everything, getting messaging out early. So that is just a reminder. That's right. This is not the answer. That's right. And we'll do our best to link you to reliable sources and to give you information that is trustworthy and reliable. And we'll try and balance, you know, information overload with, you know, kind of targeted, directed, hopefully actionable things that change your practice, you know, in a pre-hospital or an ER setting. But understand that, to your point, Jordan, we're, we're learning. We're trying to lean on Italian experience or South Korean experience or Chinese experience or even Washington State experience. And if there's any listeners out there from Washington State, Northern California, New York, places with these uh, big out breaks, you know, hang in there. Uh, We're definitely thinking about you and we appreciate all the work you're doing and we're trying to learn as much as we can from you to protect our patients and other patients down the line for sure. But, but yeah, this is a moving target. It's dynamic. And I would say that in general, with exception of a few notable outbreaks, folks seem to be prepared, but not overwhelmed and not in full crisis or surge capacity. But I know that there's a lot of planning going on around that. Jordan, do you want to comment on any of that? Because I know you're involved heavily in that here at Swedish. Yeah, I think right now, I feel like we're in a good position. We started ramping things up and acting early, earlier than I expected we would as a nation. <laughs> so so kudos to, to everyone on that. And, and kudos to everyone who's following the guidelines and staying home and avoiding things. And shame on all you spring breakers in Florida. <laughs> Jordan and I are six feet apart from each other right now, which is really hard to do. But we are in our bathing suits, dreaming of the beach. <laughs> <laughs> Two very different visuals, (laughs) Jordan versus myself. So I would say there's a ton of discussion on how do we best care for these patients, cohort these patients, figure out what is the safest, most effective way to care for the largest number of people, and hopefully avoid getting to triage capacity like they had to do in Northern Italy. If we can stay ahead of that, I know over the next several days, we're going to see a lot of positive tests coming out because Mm -hmm. we've been waiting for results. That's right. And so I, I think what they've been saying on the news and, and I think is very true is that will be a bit of a misnomer because as a society really made steps to prevent the spread of this. And I think it's going to be effective based on all the research I've seen, but we have to stay vigilant and stay on top of this and make sure that we're avoiding any unnecessary exposures, not only in our personal lives, but definitely in our professional lives. And that's something that we're thinking about as well is how often should we be transferring these patients? Do they need to be transferred? Most of the sick ones are very critically ill Mm -hmm. and need to be on vents. And they, they are very, very high risk patients generally, let alone the new factor of spreading this virus, which we know right. is highly infectious. That's so, right. so I think we're all trying to be very aware of what we're doing and do this in the most intelligent, safest way for everybody involved. That's right. And that process is mirrored on the inpatient side in the ER and the inpatient. I think, you know, trying to really come together to figure out the best thing for these patients, you know, in advance. And do your surge plans call for dedicated respiratory wards? Do they call for changing what your usual parameters are for intubation or for cohorting or for respiratory management? You know, I think we're fortunate that we have not yet seen any sort of situation that makes us question resource allocation or those difficult end-of-life decisions, but we've seen those having to be made, right? I mean, we've seen the podcast from the New York Times yesterday about the director from the ICU in Northern Italy about how difficult those decisions are in old, medically 
complicated patients, and we we thankfully aren't aren't there. But I think all of those type of planning things are happening in the pre-hospital setting. They're happening at the ER and in the inpatient setting at hospitals around the country. And I, I would just tell the listeners to to be in tune with that. And just a personal note for me, learn from it. I mean, I I think this is a, it's a generational thing. It could be a once in a lifetime thing. I, I hope it's a once in a lifetime thing. I mean, I, I mean, there's there's always the looming influenza pandemic or the you know, looming bioterrorism or other infectious disease concerns. But I mean, this is an opportunity to learn. And, and I remember the first time I ever got exposed to this kind of stuff was around the time of swine flu. And thinking that was really cool and that I maybe wanted to be like an epidemiologist with the CDC. Uh, I'm not. Um, <laughs> I'm not nearly intelligent enough to do that. Uh, my wife has an MPH and she does like epidemiology stuff, but I, I mean, that I married up. What can I say? <laughs> so, but the point is that I think this stuff is fascinating and it, this is this will not be the last time we deal with this. And I think that if there's folks out there who are young and trying to, or not young, and trying to think about what they would want to do in 10 or 15 years and uh, would, if this is interesting to you, immerse yourself in it. We're fortunate that we have so much data for from the countries that have seen this before us and from our country now. I mean, what an opportunity to dive into this and to see if outbreaks and pandemics and that sort of thing is something that interests you because EMS and ER folks, the majority of our listeners, are the ones who oftentimes find themselves the most involved with these things, you know, who, who do these things out of the hospital, so to speak, the most, whether it's disaster management or pandemics. And, and I think that's awesome. I think we should continue to own that and, and be proud of that. Yeah, and I, I would say, too, it doesn't have to be a professional change, a career change. This can be something that you, if you have a passion for it, learn as much as you can, devour all these articles that are coming out, all the data that's coming out, all the podcasts that are coming out from all over the world. Especially about ours. Especially ours. <laughs> and and share that with your colleagues. I think, you know, as, as paramedics, lean on the physicians in the ER. I think a lot of them learning as quickly as we are in the field. And I think we're all trying to adapt to this quickly, but absolutely lean on all your colleagues of every level. If you have questions, concerns about how you should be managing patients, what kind of PPE to wear, if your leadership at your agency or your hospital are not giving you strong direction, reach out for more information. Make sure that you're protecting yourself so that you can continue to go to work and serve your community. And I guess that kind of brings us to my last thing that I had on my list, I guess, was... uh, what specific steps should healthcare providers in the ER and in the field be taking to prevent the spread and care for our patients both at the same time? What are the, I mean, kind of top three things? We've got, talked about a lot of things, but what are the hurdles? Yeah. Protect yourself, I would say, with PPE. Minimize the number and duration of interactions you have with the patient. Do not read this as me saying, don't care for patients. This is not me saying if the patient's decompensating don't go in the room that's not what i'm saying but i think we all know there are a lot of interactions that happen in the emergency department that can happen just as easily from the door as it can from within six feet of the patient and can we minimize those can we minimize that risk to our nursing staff to our pre-hospital staff to the techs in the er and to ourselves as physicians that has to be paramount we are a limited resource pandemics in many ways are characterized by how much they decimate the healthcare workforce. And the spread of the pandemic is dictated by that in a lot of ways. And I think I would say that you have to protect yourself with equipment, protect yourself with duration and spacing, and work closely as a team to communicate clearly. This has come up a number of times as we've been responding to potential COVID cases in the ER. Our instinct and our very soul is to go into the room It's the same thing in the pre-hospital setting. You get a call from wherever and the patient's in respiratory distress and your first, second, third, fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh, eighth, ninth, tenth, hundredth inclination is to go dive in and help that person, just like it is in the ER for us. When the O2 sat alarm goes off, pause, 
just pause for a second at the doorway. Every time you're going into a doorway and ask yourself, is it necessary that I go into this room right now? Could I do something else? Could I use telemedicine? Could I use a phone? And if, and if it is necessary, just protect yourself. That We're in the early stages, as we've been discussing. It's it's going to get worse. And, and, and I think that we need to be around and we need to protect each other. Yeah. And I think two of those points, I know for EMS, CDC was suggesting, if at all possible, don't be in the back with your patient. If you don't have to be there doing procedures, sit up front. You can talk mm. to your patient from a distance while you're on your way to the hospital. And and just those small steps right. in changing the way that we practice, these are extraordinary times. And certainly they call for extraordinary measures. And we are definitely changing the way we practice everything we do. You know, if a month ago someone had said, yeah, I'm just going to ride up front. Uh, we'll throw the patient in the back. I would have been beside myself. But right. now right. there's a really good reason for that that's tangible and verifiable and and is good for our patients and good for our providers. That's right. So so don't be afraid of rethinking how you practice. And when you're interviewing patients on scene, I know it's it can be hard when you're walking into someone's home and they've been coughing up a storm for days. You don't necessarily have to rush right into their house. You can right. wait outside the door and you can have a conversation with someone from six feet away. And you can start your exam and kind of see where you need to be and what kind of PPE you need to be in. You don't have to show up to the door in a full bunny suit with a hood on. But if that's what your agency's doing, good on you. Because yep. if you're that's taking right. steps to prevent this and protect your people, that is the most important thing right now. Because as this grows, like you said, healthcare providers are going to be in short supply and you know, those bartenders just aren't going to be able to do the job, unfortunately. Yeah, it's not even open. I don't know, depending on where you're listening, there are no bars open. Well, I, they, they need jobs now. That's right. Well, I'm just going to use Jordan as my bartender. He's I'm great at that. He is. He is. I can confirm that. He is. I'm a man of many talents. <laughs> a man of many talents. I would, and just one kind of final point for me is that, to that point, is is just take, take care of one another. I mean, I think this is hard on our families, you know, those with kids at home and kids are home from school and you know you're trying to protect your family but you're trying to be close to them because I think you know we get such energy from going home and taking a break and stepping away from it which is just so important during all this but at the same time you're trying to protect them and it's exhausting and the mental burden of this the emotional burden of this is one that I see already building up in myself I see it in my colleagues pre-hospital and in the ER and I would just say you know take care of yourselves and protect yourselves physically and mentally and emotionally. And I, th I think on that exact point, this is going to be impacting the general public as they're all stuck in their houses and can't interact and be social beings like we're made to be. So use this as the opportunity to to call that friend you haven't talked to in a while because mm -hmm. it's gonna it's gonna breathe new life into to your day. It's gonna give you a break from the stress at work and it's gonna give them something to to do and then rekindle old friendships too. I know it sounds corny, but I think we're all the whole society is gonna need some serious mental health focus through this. So. So think about what you can do and how you can contribute and look out for yourself, look out for each other. Absolutely. I'm calling Jordan tonight, 10 minutes after this ends. I'll miss him dearly already at that point. I'll be laying in my bed, <laughs> just like in fifth grade, <laughs> curling the phone cord around my finger. So what are you doing? <laughs> Does anyone still have landlines anymore? <laughs> I don't think that even exists. I'll just wrap a cord around my finger and talk on my cell phone. Perfect. That's yeah. right. That's right. Whatever it takes. Keep yeah. yourself sane. Thank you so much for giving me all the answers to the questions I have. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> well, thank you for having a discussion. I think this is just hard time for everybody, and we're all trying to, to share as much information. So this is our small way of trying to contribute to this, this large conversation, and we'll try to find more opportunities to share more as we can. Absolutely. More to come. More to come. We're all in it together. So you'll be hearing from us again soon. All right. On behalf of the Emergency Medical Minute, signing off. See you next time. Mm -hmm.